This episode of New Politics was recorded on June the 18th, 2020. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, the politics of protests during a pandemic, the history wars are starting up again, and branch stacking in Victoria. Who's the biggest branch stacker of them all? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, masked vigilante. As well as being the season for pandemics, it's been the season for rallies and protests, and in recent times, we've had the action on the streets from all sides of politics. Last month, we saw the appearance of anti-vaxxers and QAnon taking to the streets to protest against lockdowns, social distancing, and for some bizarre reason, Bill Gates. Last week, we saw Black Lives Matter and deaths in custody rallies to highlight a pandemic of a different kind, discrimination and police brutality against Indigenous people. But different kinds of protest brings out different kinds of political responses. According to the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, anti-vaxxer and QAnon protests are freedom of expression. But rallies in support of Indigenous people are a risk to public health and the economy, and the protesters needed to be locked up and arrested. We're still dealing with the management of the coronavirus, and there are health risks with public protests, but it's either all in or all out. We can't have a situation where one style of protest is acceptable and another style isn't. There has been a lot of discussion about Black Lives Matter recently, but perhaps for the Prime Minister, Black Lives really don't matter very much at all. I think the Prime Minister lives in a bubble. I think that he only accepts what's in his own experience his views are based on a very a very narrow and a very privileged view of society and when i mean privileged i mean in the fullest sense of the word in that he hasn't worked hard in a variety of positions and been successful in them in fact it's been quite the opposite according to reports and it's the same now he doesn't work in standard ways bushfires happens he goes to hawaii problem needs to be solved, he makes announcements and then walks back from them, to use that American term. He doesn't really seem to know what he's doing there, except that he wants the job. And this, of course, is highly problematic for someone tasked to run the federal government and the parliament and, you know, all its branches. My main point of contention is about the duplicity and double standards coming from the Prime Minister and coming from the government. And of course, people do have the freedom of expression in this country. They do have the right to protest and take to the streets if they wish to. We are still managing the effects of the pandemic, but for the anti-vaxxers and QAnon supporters to gather and protest in the streets and... We also have to remember that these occurred in early May when the conditions were far more restrictive. Not too many people in the media or the government called them out at that stage. Let's listen to what the Prime Minister said at that point. Deal with, I think, the anxieties and frustrations that they're feeling. It's a free country. People will make their protests and make their voices heard. But equally, that needs to be done in an appropriate way and, and needs to respect the law enforcement authorities who are just simply trying to do their job. So we understand it's a difficult time and those issues will be dealt with in, in, in the normal way. But four weeks later, the Prime Minister had a totally different story to tell. And let's say to those who had the absolute agony of not being able to say goodbye to a loved one, let's thank them by showing responsibility this weekend. The health advice is very clear that it's not a good idea to go. Let's find a better way and another way to express these sentiments rather than putting your own health at risk, the health of others at risk, and let's not forget the terrible economic consequences of that as well. Let's not put that at risk this weekend. I encourage people not to attend for those reasons and those reasons only. So two different protests, two different political responses. The New South Wales government even went to the effort of using the Supreme Court to declare the Black Lives Matter rallies illegal. In a democratic system, you can't have governments deciding which protests are okay to proceed with and which protests should be banned. It's pretty clear that with some people on the right wing, freedom of speech, probity and integrity 
is something that they expect of others, but not of themselves. Freedom of speech is fine if you're agreeing with them. It's not fine if you're disagreeing with them. Rules are for other people to obey, and they should obey them. And again, I'm not trying to taint the whole of every right-wing thinker with the same brush. It is a minority. Unfortunately, some of that minority are in positions of power and influence in this country. But it's certainly an attitude that exists with some people. It probably exists in certain elements of the left too. We don't hear about them as much. But with the demonstration, the fact that you'd go out in the middle of a pandemic and protest on behalf of the loopiest things that Bill Gates wants to implant a microchip in you. And some of this comes from elements of uh, Christianity who who believe that this is fulfilling uh, prophecy in the book in the books of uh, Daniel and in the books of uh, Revelations. And, and there's no indication for any of this. It's all interpretations after the fact done 2,000 years later. The fact that you can go out says a lot for the potential strength of democracy in this country. Also, the other thing that was implied was that the Black Lives Matter protests were just as loopy or even had less validity, that you know, Bill Gates is developing a microchip to put into you, but that policemen are killing Indigenous people and people of colour, oh, that's just nuts. Provided that the protests are managed properly, social distance, um, masks and non-violent, there should be no problem from a philosophical and democratic point of view in having them. We can then discuss the relative merits of them later. But it's funny how the Age and the Herald made sure that uh, and implied that someone caught coronavirus by going to the Black Lives Matter protest. For all we know, they could have gone to the football, they could have gone to the shopping centre, what have you, and still had it. Uh, I believe that the person was asymptomatic and only developed symptoms later and then went and, went and got the, the test. Be that as it may, that hint that he got it or had it at the Black Lives Matter protest and has now spread it to everyone was a very powerful and wrong-headed and rather insidious accusation. Well, that's the duplicity that I'm referring to. It's the it's coming from the media, from the government, and it needs to be called out at every opportunity. And it also shows how politicised the chief medical officers are. They virtually said nothing about the anti-vax QAnon protests. They actually said that it should be okay as long as social distancing protocols are followed. But for Black Lives Matter, they said that it was totally irresponsible that people should stay away, they should stay at home. And there were also key government ministers that came out to politicise the event. They said that it was appalling that people couldn't attend Anzac Day events, that it was appalling that people couldn't attend family funerals, yet here were protesters attending Black Lives Matter rallies. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, he called them self-indulgent, selfish and reckless. Now these are classic conservative tactics of division and this is a government that will never waste an opportunity to score political points irrespective of the circumstances and and the government responses they well they weren't the only ones to show this duplicity that I'm referring to in our previous episode we mentioned how Rio Tinto detonated an Aboriginal heritage site in the Dukan Gorge in Western Australia now Compare that with the events last week where during the deaths in custody rallies, police circled a statue of Captain James Cook in Hyde Park in central Sydney to protect it from protesters. They also set up a 24-hour police guard over the Cook Cottage in, in Melbourne. So here we have two different elements of sacred history for different parts of the community. One element is detonated and the other one is afforded the protection of the state. The chief medical officer also said all lives matter, which is, of course, a racially charged dog whistle. The reason that we have a Black Lives Matter is because it is clear that in some points of view, not all lives matter. And so for people who won't be affected by police brutality in that way, to then act the victim is totally outrageous. Now, the the protecting of the statues... It's difficult because I don't want to see the statues 
destroyed. Yet I fully comprehend and understand, acknowledge and even agree that some statues represent a racist past that is a blight on Australian history, including the Cook statue. Cook shot a couple of Aborigines when he stepped off the boat. Uh, Lachlan Macquarie is highly problematic. Without Macquarie, of course, we wouldn't have the city of Sydney. Without Macquarie, of course, we wouldn't have had Aboriginal deaths uh, deliberately carried out to express power and a new law. The fact that these will be defended before the lives of Indigenous people, I think, speaks volumes. We had a police drinking night where they did a parody of the Welcome to Country without any sort of sense that this might be seen as offensive to those people who, for whom that is important. And of course, it's against the background of this global movement that started with the, the, the George Floyd, the death of George Floyd sparked the latest waves of protest and, and resistance and moved right around the world. I suppose the 5G, uh, Bill Gates is trying to give you autism movement is also a global movement, but it's interesting how there's no overlap in the two. Well, just getting back to the removal of statues, and I'm not really a fan of statues and monuments. It brings back memories of all those Eastern European communist dictators for me, but I feel that there are three options when it comes to these existing problematic statues. One, that we leave them as they are, or we remove them, Or we look at another alternative. We place new statues next to the existing ones, offering different perspectives and alternative histories. And one example of this is the Explorers Monument in Fremantle in in West Australia. It was created in 1913 in the memory of three explorers killed in the north of Western Australia by Aboriginal people in 1864. The monument itself, it includes the bust of the three explorers and mentions words such as murdered by treacherous natives, but it makes no mention at all about how well armed these three men were or the fact that they killed 20 Aboriginal people before that or the fact that the Aboriginal people were defending their own lands. In 1994, a group of local historians, they placed another plaque at the base of the monument in a prominent position, outlining how they found the monument offensive and that the original monument told the history of events from one perspective only. So here we have an example where disputed history has been corrected and an alternative history is heard. So if, as, as a society, if we are going to be so enamoured with this whole idea of statues and monuments in the community, instead of removing them completely, could this be a useful compromise? I think it would be. I think, again, I come from all of this from a position of relative privilege. So I don't know what it's like to be oppressed even in that micro way where you don't know that you're being oppressed. And I'm hoping, and I try and choose my language very carefully, but it takes many, many years to iron all this out. I think that having a plaque because we don't want to erase the discussions of the past at all, because without those discussions, we can't understand the past and we can't find the alternative opinions. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable walking around the city because there's statues and monuments to things that weren't in their best interest. But I think having a opening a discussion at the site, maybe putting the statues in museums, a friend of mine suggests that, so that they're there, you can go and see them, the the discussion is still there. They pulled the Germans episode from Faulty Towers because the Major makes some racial statements. And if you watch it, even Basil Faulty is offended by the Major's But if you can't read the physical cues, you might not. So to have a little statement at the beginning saying there's this scene with these words, you know, you might find this offensive and we acknowledge that these are wrong. And another friend of mine suggested maybe John Cleese should do a 30 second at the beginning of it to explain the intention was to laugh at this stuff and that he as the creator repudiates it and he wouldn't do it today. The trick is engaging everybody in the debate so that everybody has a say and everybody feels 
that they can have a say, no matter how uncomfortable that is to other people. Well, history is a movable feast, and as time goes forward, there there always has to be reinterpretations of history. There is that old adage that history has been written by the victors of war, and that certainly applied after the Second World War, with history understood from the British and American perspectives, and we saw that reinforced with anti-German propaganda movies created by Hollywood. We saw that reinforced through mainstream literature and history books. But generally, it's better if there's a shared history. Metaphors and imagery and images are, are an important part of history. In the case of Captain James Cook in Hyde Park, if we are going to keep these monuments, and I'm not a fan of them, why not have a shared space with the statue of Pemmelboy next to Captain Cook or Jundamara next to Governor Broome in the Kimberley region? Then we might be able to keep everybody happy. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that everyone would be happy, but everyone hopefully would see that we're making this attempt to include all the stories. When, when you go to London and the statues are there and there's Trafalgar Square, but I've noted that they have put up a statue of Nelson Mandela and Gandhi. And this might be a good example of ensuring that at least to a very start, at a very small start, that the history of the British Empire is not just the great white man swooping in and fixing everything through genocide and oppression, but that there were others who were even more important. I note in regional museums, there is a lot more effort now to acknowledging Indigenous people and their contribution to the area. And not just, and this is a good thing too, not just as the others who were here before, who were these mystical people who had all this knowledge that just sort of disappears when white people come. And they have that, but they also have people who were around and are still around and their contributions to the community. And this is, I think, to be encouraged and applauded. There was also another front opening up in the ongoing history wars. Not sure when they're going to end, but they've been going on for far too long. Let's listen to what the Prime Minister said last week. Well, when you talk about someone like Captain James Cook, in his time, he was one of the most enlightened persons on these issues you can imagine. I mean, Australia, when it was um, founded um, as, a, as a settlement, um, as New South Wales, was, was on the basis that there'd be no slavery. And we, while, while slave ships continued to travel around the world... When Australia was established, yeah, sure, it was a pretty brutal settlement. My, my forefather and foremothers were on the first and second fleets. It was a pretty brutal place, but there was no slavery in Australia. Now, that's a, a very unusual statement for a Prime Minister to put out, to, to say the least, that there never has been slavery in Australia. Now, some of the media, as usual, gave Morrison the benefit of the doubt and suggested that Morrison made the claim out of ignorance rather than being malicious, but I'm not so sure about that. I'm of a similar age to Scott Morrison, and the the Australian history taught to me in high school was incredibly poor and mediocre. It was pretty much all about the vainglorious explorers traipsing around Australia, discovering yet another mountain or herding sheep across vast territories. Aboriginal people were pretty much whitewashed out of historical significance, but even that poor Australian history education outlined the history of slavery, indentured labour and blackbirding. I feel that on a basic level, most people across Australia would probably understand or be aware that that had been the case in Australia's history. I'd actually be surprised if Scott Morrison didn't know about the slavery of Aboriginal people. he did make an apology the following day, but when he tried to further clarify it, he suggested that he was talking about there never ever being any slavery in New South Wales, which is which is also not correct. Now, I'd expect a Prime Minister to have a pretty solid understanding of the history of the country that they're meant to be leading, the, the good parts, the not-so-good parts of history, the nuance history. And I'm not sure his statements would have been coming from a position of ignorance, but more than likely sending a political message to the conservative base of the Liberal Party and One Nation supporters who might be inclined to vote for the Liberal Party. My, my view is that it's a, a willful ignorance. I think it's playing to the base because he knows that this is what the base knows, but it also uh, gels with his worldview. 
Now, you can point to the American system of slavery and say, oh, yeah, but we didn't have that, which is true. We didn't import our slaves. We grew them here. This doesn't make it any better. It's not until 1967 that we have the referendum. Now, the referendum is misunderstood as to what it was. It didn't actually grant Aboriginal people citizenship. They already had it. But what it did was move the administration of Indigenous affairs from the states to the Commonwealth. So that meant that there was a uniform approach to Aboriginal people around the country rather than New South Wales having this set of laws, Queensland having this set of laws, South Australia having this set of laws, which for a lot of itinerant workers, workers who moved around the seasons doing the various jobs depending on what the season was, it made things a lot easier. You could move from, say, Burke to Udnadatta to Gympie without having to change all your details, without having to work out what pay you were under, without having to work out what conditions you were entitled to. Did it make things better? Uh, It's not for me to say. I think no is a good general answer. It probably improves some little things. As the Kevin Rudd apology showed in 2007, that was, what, 40 years later. There's still a lot of work to go and probably more since then, since I think we've gone backwards, but that's that's a whole other issue. But, yeah, the Prime Minister has a fairly feeble grasp of history. I remember hearing a speech he did once on Robert Menzies, And I know a bit about Menzies, and it didn't seem anything like the Menzies that I was aware of. It didn't seem that he had read very much on Menzies. I doubt he's read Martin's two-volume biography. I doubt he's read Judith Brett's very interesting biography. I doubt he's even read Jared Henderson's quite good history of the Liberal Party from Menzies on to understand things. It was fairly ahistorical. I would venture to suggest he'd struggle to tell you when Menzies was Prime Minister, how long he lasted, and what his importance as Prime Minister was. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, branch stacking in the Victoria branch of the Labor Party, and we take a look at the biggest branch stack in recent times, the pre-selection battle in the seat of Cook in 2007. been an expose of the branch stacking antics in the Victoria branch of the Labor Party where the Labor MP Adam Somurek has been accused of massive branch stacking to manipulate the pre-selection of Labor candidates. Now we'll set aside the ethics and legalities of 60 Minutes making covert recordings inside a minister's office for the time being but the affair has resulted in the intervention by the Federal Labor Party into the Victoria branch Somurek has been expelled from the party and in the words of Federal President Wayne Swan There'll never be a place for him in the ALP ever again. Branch stacking is a blight on the democratic process and it's a practice usually associated with the Labor Party, but it's across all the other parties, Liberal, National, Greens, One Nation. In 2017, Liberal Party branches across Melbourne were stacked with right-wing Mormons, Catholics and neo-Nazis. And back in 2007, Scott Morrison was the beneficiary of branch stacking activities in the pre-selection battle in the seat of Cook. Now, it's fair to say branch stacking shouldn't be happening at all, but it's not just within the domain of one political party, and it's far more prevalent than the public realises. Every party has its numbers people, and, and they're people who aren't so much interested in the policy They have a broad agreement with whoever's in charge and then they make sure that the numbers are there so that their policies of their faction can get through. From Eddie Ward and Graham Richardson in Labor to um, Reg Withers and even Tony Abbott, this notion of getting your numbers is really important. President Lyndon Johnson didn't do anything till he knew he had the numbers and spent a lot of time making sure that he had the numbers because without the numbers, nothing could be done. 
This was probably one of the failings of Gough Whitlam, that he didn't really care about the numbers. He just knew what he thought was right and so tried to crash through or crash. Bob Hawke, of course, and Paul Keating were able to use the numbers in exquisitely efficient ways, as was John Howard. John Howard knew the importance of numbers. The numbers themselves are neither here nor there. They are the tool you use to get your policy through. Unfortunately, the numbers people can become too powerful. And so you have in Labor, Eddie Obede in New South Wales and uh, Adam uh, Somurek in Victoria who get an influence far beyond what they need. Obede used his numbers to to build a, a big fortune and acted very corruptly. And, of course, he was working with people like Arthur Sinodinus, you know, cross-party corruption. This isn't what we mean when we say we want cross-party cooperation. Somurek stacked the branches with his people. And again, as Lord Acton wrote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Well, every political party has their characters that behave in this particular way. So there's Adam Somurek, as you mentioned, in Victoria, Eddie Obede in New South Wales. Now, he tried to embezzle the state of $100 million. That's a massive amount of money. He, of course, is sitting in jail, and hopefully he'll be there for a long time as punishment for his crimes. But every political party has got them. So I guess there is the perception out there that all of these sort of characters only exist in the in the Labor Party because that's how the media frames all of these branch stacking issues. New South Wales Liberal Party has got a lot of similar sort of characters as well. They've got Chris Harcher. They've got people like Michael Fosios as well, Arthur Sinodinus. Now, all of these people have got a relatively low profile All of these people do have a function within all of these political parties. They raise a lot of money, and it's usually from different ethnic groups within the community. They call the shots in the background. And, of course, once you've got a lot of money flowing in, they accumulate a lot of power as well. So they're usually pretty horrible people. They cause trouble, but they're usually left to their own devices. And I guess this this is how all of these issues arise. They're silently working in the background, raising money for the respective political parties, which is why political parties usually turn a blind eye to it. Obviously, it's not good that these people are there, but if we are to go through the process of removing these sort of people, what would be the best way of doing that? I think we should have publicly funded elections. Each party gets, as they do anyway, for every primary vote you get it's four dollars a vote isn't it something like that provided you get more than four percent of the primary vote now there's an argument which i do understand and uh it is a weakness in this approach that liberal labor nationals benefit because they get the big votes and that entrenches that type of power having said that it does allow smaller parties that are a bit serious so the greens one nation etc., are still able to have a say, and even if they don't win a seat, it means that, you know, a genuine party, and I don't necessarily agree with any party I've mentioned so far, can still be part of the debate, still be part, still campaign. Now, there's still problems with the issue. Clive Palmer's party used that to great effect, although a lot of that was his own money too. My view is if you take out all political donations for electoral campaigns... You know, and maybe you have a limit of $100 per individual capped at $5,000 so that the party can throw an afternoon tea or print some pamphlets or and real-time donation. So-and-so has just donated X amount. But, of course, if you take out the donations, this stuff becomes redundant. So I think we should go back to publicly funded elections with a cap on spending. I think that would remove a lot of the corruption. I think that would be a very good start. The other issue to point out is that branch stacking in itself is not actually illegal. If I get someone else's agreement to be a party member and if I pay their their fees, as long as they sign the form and agree to doing it, there's absolutely nothing illegal with that. The illegalities are if you get someone else's name, put it onto a form, you sign their signature, you still pay their membership fee. That's the part that's illegal, but the actual process of branch stacking itself is not illegal. That's one issue. It still does pervert the course of democracy. That's a a different issue. 
Branch stacking does bring up those images of shady Labor Party operatives barking their instructions down the phone to some poor soul at the other end of the call. But it's interesting to note that the last two Liberal Party Prime Ministers have been the, the main beneficiaries of branch stacking on an industrial scale. In 2004, Malcolm Turnbull undermined the sitting Liberal Party MP in the seat of Wentworth. That was Peter King. The membership of the branches in the seat rose by over 50%. The Turnbulls enrolled a number of people from the Jewish community in the eastern suburbs, a number of other mates and cronies to swing the pre-selection. That was quite a vicious campaign. Turnbull won that pre-selection against Peter King. He won the seat at the 2004 election and then went on to become Prime Minister in 2015. Scott Morrison essentially did the same thing back in 2007. In that pre-selection contest, it was between Morrison and Michael Tauk, uh, another up-and-coming Liberal Party candidate. In a fair contest, Tauk won 82 votes. Scott Morrison gained only eight votes, but Morrison embarked on a nasty campaign to imply that Tauk was a pedophile, a branch stacker, a serial liar about his past and his history, and he used News Corporation to totally smear Michael Tauk. Liberal Party headquarters, they intervened. Morrison stacked the branches with a wide range of Pentecostal church people, more mates and more cronies. Miraculously, Morrison ended up winning the pre-selection. He won the seat of Cook at the 2007 election and he became Prime Minister in 2018. The thing is, too, is that Michael Tauk, I, I don't know him personally, but... He's of uh, Lebanese background, I believe. And so for the Liberal Party to put in a symbol of modern multicultural Australia into a fairly blue ribbon, fairly Anglo seat, I think would have neutralised a lot of the criticisms um, that gets thrown at them. But to throw out a person of Middle Eastern background for another Anglo didn't look good. And for the universally disliked Scott Morrison, and he was disliked then. Friends of mine involved in politics down that way scratched their head when they saw that Morrison got the pre-selection, couldn't understand it, and in fact still can't. Well, all of these different candidates that run for, for elections, they're always unknown before they enter Parliament. Scott Morrison was the head of Tourism Australia before he was sacked in 2006. Not many people knew about Michael Tauk at that time as well. Of course, people do know who Scott Morrison is now because he's the Prime Minister. Across Australia, there'd be all these branch stacks going on for particular people to get into Parliament. It's not just the Labor Party that it happens. It happens in all of the parties. And in that case, Michael Tauk was a standout candidate in that particular pre-selection battle in 2007. He wasn't the one that ended up being the representative of the seat of Cook. If things had been differently, he might have been the Prime Minister today. We'll never know the answer to to that question. But in this current pre-selection issue in Victoria, Scott Morrison did say that Anthony Albanese has questions to answer about the Victoria branch stacking, but it seems to be that the biggest questions need to be asked of Scott Morrison seems to be the biggest branch stacker of all. We need to know what exactly did happen back in 2007 in the seat of Cook in that pre-selection battle and why News Corporation suddenly became involved in smearing a, another Liberal Party candidate. I think that would be a pretty interesting investigation. I think that popcorn sales would go through the roof, maybe even turn the economy around. You know, popcorn-led recovery as we all sat down to watch exactly what happened. As I say, I don't know Michael Tauk at all. My understanding is that he would have been a, a, a decent candidate. I'm sure he would have said things that had he got through, we'd have been raging against, but that's debate and politics and that's perfectly okay. I know that Paul Keating was accused of branch stacking for for his seat back in 1967 when he, he first got his seat. Uh, he'd ousted an older Labor member. There was a muckraking book which went through and, and said that he was was the beneficiary of branch stacking. Looking at the evidence, it just seemed that they were looking to move on an old, out-of-touch member and that Keating used his prodigious political skills to remove the sitting member and get the seat. Politics is nasty and brutal. It's just that Keating, and I could point to many other Liberal members too, 
do it without the backing of News Corp. You know, they have to do it the whole, the old-fashioned way, working the phones, now working texts and emails and WhatsApps and all of that, trying to convince people to go from their traditional to the other or bringing in your friends to vote. And, of course, another way to beat this is to have strict laws on who can vote, minimum of three months membership, uh, party attendance at meetings, etc., etc. Most associations manage that. Political parties tend not to. (laughs) Now, I don't want us to be accused of supporting branch stacking or... Gosh, no. ...or being any supportive of any of those sort of branch stacking activities. We're definitely against that and believe that branch stacking should be removed from politics completely. But we're mainly looking at the politics of this. And it was Mm. interesting that the expose on the Victorian branch stacking in the Labor Party. It was released on 60 Minutes last Sunday night. Now, they claimed that it was a one-year investigation and they had secret recordings in ministerial offices. Now, I don't know how they got that information or how they got the recordings of the phone calls. But it's interesting that 60 Minutes is a program that appears on the Nine Network. The chairperson of the Nine Network is former Liberal Party treasurer, Peter Costello. And it's interesting that this major story, which has been running, it was released on Sunday, but the news about branch shacking has been running pretty much for the entire week. The program was released the night before pre-polling opened in the Eden Monero by-election. Is there anything fishy going on here, David? What a stroke of luck. (laughs) Um, Again, we need to really think about how we do media here. We need to break down the conglomerates. I mean, it's hard. Peter Costello is a private citizen and is entitled to do whatever job that he, he can get. You know, that's... And it may be that it was the young ideologues in 60 Minutes who saw this horrible corruption happening in their state and wanted to stamp it out. And that the story was put so far in advance that they couldn't have known that there was the Eden Monero and that it just did happen to be a coincidence. Part of me wants to believe that. (laughs) It, It is very fishy. And Eden Monero will give them one more seat if they win it. They're throwing grants at Eden Monero like they're going out of style. Uh, Last I heard, there was a convoy of barrels full of pork going down the the Hume Highway towards the the town of Yass to just throw out everywhere. It's a bit sus, I think it's fair to say. There's a few issues going on in politics and the media and one of them is the issue of whether Australia is opening up its economy and society either too quickly or too slowly in its response to COVID-19. There has been a second wave of coronavirus opening up in China and if we look at the beginning of 2020 that's when the coronavirus spread rapidly throughout parts of China and northern Italy. And Australia was able to witness events happening elsewhere and act locally to stop the spread of the the virus. Australia probably didn't move as rapidly as it could have at at that time, and we probably should have been looking more closely at events overseas. New Zealand did eliminate all local transmission of coronavirus and removed all internal restrictions last week. Their international borders are still closed. What should Australia do? There's only Western Australia and Tasmania that have still got their borders closed. Should Australia open up completely just like New Zealand or should we wait just a little while longer? The argument for the opening is that the hospital system is now equipped to be able to manage the disease. So if people get it, there's enough beds, there's enough testing, there's enough medication, there's enough available care. I'll assume that this is true. Having said that, when these things come back, they come back much bigger than anyone expected. 1920, it was the second wave that killed the millions of people and the influenza in the 1920s killed 1% to 2% of the world's population. That's massive. In some areas, it was 25 and 30%. Other areas, of course, got nothing. People say, oh, we live in a different world, and we do live in a different world. We have much better healthcare, and that's great, but we also have much, much faster and more effective means of transmission. That's not so great. 
China has jumped on their second, and China had very, very low, very, very low transmission. China was ready, really ready to open up, and by all indications, looked like it could. But it started to surge back, so they've done the right thing again and closed down right away. And China had a very, very hard close down, much harder than ours. They were welding, uh, allegedly welding the doors shut of unit blocks so you couldn't go outside and then delivering food and water and, and other supplies to people. Our lockdown was almost voluntary. You, you could still go to Bunnings on the weekend. You could still go to the shopping centre. Ours was a fairly mild lockdown uh, and may not have gone far enough. Certainly, every time I mention this, I am hoping that they are right. And I'd like to think that they are. I think there's been a lot of pressure from the federal government to open up. I think there's been a lot of pressure from big business to open up. And I note that it's all people who want to open up are still in isolation. And again, it's the one rule for us, one rule for them. The number of active coronavirus cases across Australia is fluctuating between the 380 and 390 mark. And it has been like that for a few weeks. Now, it end, may end up being the case that these numbers remain like this for some time, or it may end up being the permanent mm. number that we have at that level. Mm. The key question is how this is managed all in the long term. The debate about opening or closing is along political lines. We had the ridiculous situation where a Queensland senator, Amanda Stoker, she was attacking the WA government for keeping their borders closed, claiming that it was affecting the Queensland economy. Now, there's no evidence for this, of course, but it's all in the context of a Queensland election coming up. It's all about politics, but it's becoming quite boring and it's becoming quite predictable as well. I don't know that Deb Frecklington's been a terribly good leader of the opposition, but I think, to be fair to her, she's been hampered by having to oppose a government that did quite a lot of stuff right, even if people in Queensland didn't agree with them. I know that Anastasia Palaszczuk was heavily criticised by people in outback Queensland saying, why do we need to socially distance? No one ever comes here. But of course, those are the people where you do need to because all it takes is one person and suddenly you've got a whole community out. And, you know, it, it's, yeah, from your point of view of I live out in the middle of nowhere, why do I need to socially distance? That attitude can change when you've got 60 people in, an, in a community of... 150 in hospital. The whole border opening thing, pressure on Queensland to open, the pressure on Western Australia to open, is based on the bigger states looking at one aspect of life, the economy. You can't run an economy if everybody's sick. And what we do know about this disease is that while it favours some, nobody is immune. On New Politics, we love to talk about the media quite incessantly. Some people would say we'll probably talk about it a little bit too much, but The Insiders is an ABC program. It's their flagship political analysis program, and it's broadcast every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, and it's been around since 2001, so that's just on 20 years. And after 800 episodes, Insiders finally had an Indigenous journalist as a panellist. Why did it take so long? If I watch Insiders at all, I only ever watch Mike Bowers talking pictures because I find that really interesting and going through the cartoons and talking to the cartoonists and, you know, I, I find that probably the best part. And when I talk about a lack of diversity on the Insiders panels, it's the same 15 people, all of them working in the press gallery. I saw a critique somewhere where it says it's like it's just continuing the dinner party from the night before, except with less wine and a bit more talk of work. I couldn't disagree. As I said, I didn't watch it, but I bet that they brought in the Indigenous panellist to talk about Indigenous matters. Well, that's exactly what happened. The first Indigenous panellist to appear on the Insiders program ever was Bridget Brennan. She's an excellent journalist. She used to be the ABC's Indigenous Affairs reporter and then the Europe correspondent, and now she's back in Australia. And this all happened after a backlash where the previous week there was an all-white four-person panel asking for their interpretations about Aboriginal perspectives and why the Black Lives Matter protests were so important for Aboriginal people, 
well, here's a hint, maybe ask an Indigenous person what they think about that. The ABC is a national broadcaster and they should be doing much, much better than this. There's a lack of representation of Indigenous people and non-Anglo people across all media in Australia. Indigenous journalists shouldn't be just appearing on on the insiders just to talk about Indigenous affairs only. We should be getting their perspectives on all political matters. Mm. And that will be a test for a program like the insiders. It took 20 years for the first Indigenous panellists to appear. The test for them will be how long before the next one appears and what will they be discussing once they're on the program? I, I did watch the Q&A with the uh, Indigenous panel. The actor, Maine Wyatt, who said he's always called an Indigenous actor. And when you think about it, you think, yeah, why? He's, he's an actor. He's a writer. Nakia Louie, she's a writer and an actor. And a, But for nearly every indigen, prominent Indigenous person, maybe Deborah Malman has transcended it a bit and maybe Jess Malboy from Torres Straits has transcended it a little bit. You always see the qualifier Indigenous actor, Indigenous writer, Indigenous producer, Indigenous doctor. Why? (laughs) And it's not about ignoring colour. I know that that's a very problematic thing that people say. Surely there comes a point where it's the work that matters not. You very rarely hear white actor. Or you might hear American actor for the first time and that just geographically locates them. And then it, it goes on and, and you're an actor. Maybe Deborah Malman has transcended that. I've never been referred to as a Croatian or Slavic writer and journalist, although I did used to write about Balkan politics in the past. I guess it is about that cultural signposting, but it depends on how that's actually used, whether it's used as a positive signifier or, or a negative one and whether those depictions mean that there's a particular expectation about what that person has to say about anything. One interesting comment that came out from the Prime Minister last week was that we can't look after everyone within the economy. We can't look after everyone within the community. I guess that's a precursor to what he's planning to do past September. So the current JobKeeper and JobSeeker arrangements are being kept until the end of September. And the government wants to close that down as soon as possible after that. But many economists are warning that if that happens, Australia's going to fall down that economic cliff. I know that the JobKeeper has been rooted. I'm not sure it's been rooted by the people who needed it. The Catholic Church has asked priests to give back half of the JobKeeper that they've been given. Other organisations have either not passed it on or given much less than the worker was entitled to. It's funny how it's never referred to a rot from a big company. It's only ever the needy and the disenfranchised and the poor who, who are in, who are accused of rotting. I think that if he could stop it before September, he will. He's got a by-election to try and bribe his way through. The economy was tanking well before the coronavirus and well before the bushfires. They've doubled the debt with nothing to show for it. I think that the um, coronavirus and bushfires have been an excuse for them to say, oh, the economy's bad, not a strong economy that has taken a knock from these things. I think that if he could finish it in August, he would. I don't think it'll last past September, and I think that's a big mistake. On that question of JobKeeper being rorted, if 50% of it is going into the wrong hands, well, that's a real problem. The money might be getting into the economy, but it's going into the wrong areas. And there, there have been some suggestions that larger businesses are manipulating the system and getting JobKeeper payments that they shouldn't be receiving. If it's only around 5%, well, that's not great, but that's a much smaller number. And it's the price that they had to pay for getting government funds into the economy as quickly as possible without administrative holdups and those sort of uh, roadblocks as well. It seems like some of the JobKeeper might be going into the wrong people, including Catholic priests, but 
it is a system that does need to be cleaned up. The bigger problem will be the government's desire to actually end the JobKeeper program. Mm. If the program does end after September, that's going to create many, many problems for the Australian economy. Oh, for sure. And you can walk down nearly any suburban shopping strip, main street, and see closed shops, um, any mall. There's a lot of shops that aren't there that were there. And it's it's a problem that they've mishandled from the very start. Rudd and Swan went early and went hard. Morrison and Frydenberg dithered and went soft. And it shows. I think there is a point where liberals prefer recessions because you vulture capitalists can swoop in and buy up assets very cheap um, and then sell them at a profit fairly quickly. And again, that's not everybody on the right. That's a minority of people who the government seems to like to work for, at least sometimes. Well, there is a by-election on July the 4th. That's the one in Eden Monero. The government is very, very, very keen to win that seat even if it just gives them that extra one-seat majority on the on the floor of the parliament. They're absolutely super keen to win that seat. I'd say that after July the 4th, depending on what the result is, or iris- maybe irrespective of whatever the result is, that's when they'll start talking about their snapback program. That's when they'll start talking about reducing JobKeeper as soon as possible. That's when they'll start talking about reducing JobSeeker as soon as possible. It's going to be a fine mess after July the 4th. And we know that they're not going to handle it. And I'm wondering if a soft media can help them dig it, dig themselves out of it, and I don't think they can. That's it for this new politics podcast. And just a reminder, if you offer $50 of support or more up until the end of August, we'll send you a copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We don't beg, plead, beseech, or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do and want to support independent journalism, go to our website, newpolitics.com.au. All the details are there. And don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Bye.